Well, hello and welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. We are sitting in New York City, as always, and uh, I am back again from sickness, second day in a row, which is quite the achievement given my last few days. And uh, I gather we're going to talk about Puerto Rico, which is somewhere looking out of the window that I would quite like to be. Yeah, and I I just was, in fact, I was down there for uh, about a week. And it's uh, a lovely place, especially this time of year. And I uh, got a nice sunburn and, and all that good stuff. When I first got there, my uh, hotel wasn't going to be ready for four hours. So I said, would you like to just wait by the pool? And I said, that would be okay. <laughs> but um, it's a messed up place. It's got a lot of problems. And Puerto Rico is of interest, not only because it's part of the United States, but um, because I think it gives a look at where our future is going if we don't sort out our fiscal affairs. Puerto Rico's economy is just in the process of being destroyed, and it's being destroyed almost entirely by excessive government spending and deficits and debt. It's got uh, just a huge debt on a per capita basis. It's been running very large deficits for a while. Um, a while back, they elected a, uh, they don't call them Republicans in Puerto Rico, but a Republican governor uh, by the name of Fortunio, uh, who we actually visited last time National Review was down in Puerto Rico on one of our cruises. He was a very reform-minded guy, did a lot of good things. He you know, downsized government significantly. He cut government spending by, I want to say, almost 20%, if I can remember the number off the top of my head. And uh, But frankly, it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to get it done. And after he had uh, implemented this program, of course, the public sector unions drove him out of office and he lost re-election. And now uh, he's been replaced by a member of... Puerto Rico's version of the Democratic Party, who is, eh, you know, sort of what one would expect, a kind of, you know, center-left populist guy, but even he understands at this point that they're going to have to balance the budget and make make significant reforms, because there's just, uh, there's just no way out. So, no to statehood for now. You know, I was walking around in San Juan, some of the other places in uh, Puerto Rico, and uh, I've traveled a lot in that part of the world, and San Juan is a very civilized city. It's very easy to feel at home there. You know, it's, it's got the old city downtown and some wonderful 16th and 17th century uh, stuff. But there's no part of San Juan that feels like an American city. Uh, Puerto Rico feels to me as culturally foreign as being in the Dominican Republic or uh, you know any number of other places down in that world that I've traveled. So um, I used to joke that the real country club position is, the country club Republican position is that Puerto Rico should immediately be given statehood in some other country, whichever one <laughs> wants it. Um, I mean, there are lots of reasons not to want Puerto Rico to be a state. It's, um, I mean, it's culturally, linguistically very different from the rest right. of the country. It's also very poor. Its per capita income is about half of Mississippi's, which is our poorest state. Um, so yeah, there's there's some, some definite downsides to it. I have a friend who jokes that we shouldn't let any place become a state where the people think traffic lights are optional. Yeah, I didn't find the traffic too uh, disorderly there, and he's uh, Puerto Rican too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in that case, I might you know suggest not spending too much time in Los Angeles and <laughs> Dallas, <laughs> and Houston, New Orleans, Miami. Uh, a lot of other, uh, you know, places with some fairly, uh, fairly chaotic driving. The problem, of course, is, uh, and this is the oldest problem for Republicans and conservatives, which is it's always hard to run against the free lunch. 
you know, when someone says we're going to give you free health care, we're going to give you pre-K, we're going to give you this, that, or the other, and you come out and say, well, no, I have to explain to you the economics behind this, and why that's not going to work very well in public choice theory and, and the rest of it, and people just go, what? Yeah, they don't know. Well, especially because we've got into a habit of doing two things. One is just flagrantly lying. Yes. It's that, you know, you come out and you say, well, we, we can't do this because of this reason. And the other side will say, no, no, we can do it and we can have everything. And the other is is using instruments like the CBO in a very Washington way. Yeah. Not in a way that anyone would ever use them before. You know, they're obliged to basically answer the question that they're given within the time frame that they're given. And so you just you basically contrive the question to set what you wanted to be said, and you can't have a proper debate about it after that. Yeah, I don't know who came up with the term Washington fact, uh, but I've heard this term used before, and what it means is uh, something that counts as a fact in polite discourse in Washington, D.C. Someone was talking about Ezra Klein's new project yeah. as basically being an arbiter of Washington I saw fact. that, too. <laughs> and uh, do you remember who wrote it? I'm trying to remember. Was it Josh Trevino? It may have been Josh, yeah. Or Dan McLaughlin. Two very different people. <laughs> very different people, but two smart guys. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you take things like, look at the debate we've had about the minimum wage recently. So I've heard 11 speeches where people have said, you know, if we pass the minimum wage increase to 1010, then CBO, whoever it was, says we'll lift 900,000 people out of poverty, which is true, CBO said that, but also said it would cost between 500,000 people and 900,000 people their jobs. So you don't really know where you're going to where you're going to end up ahead or not, and of course forecasts are, are questionable sort of things, but we engage in a lot of single-entry bookkeeping where we only talk about the benefits mm-hmm. and we never talk about the costs. And that was a real defect, I think, of the Obamacare debate, and but also of the, you know, the problems with doing things like entitlement reform, which um, you know everyone knows what the benefits are because they see the check show up every two weeks or every month or how often it does. Do we actually write checks still on this anymore, or is it all direct deposit? No, I think there are checks. Are there still checks? I, okay, I don't know. Um, I, or maybe it's direct deposit and they send a paper copy. Yeah, checks are sort of archaic. I had to write a check a couple of months ago for something, and it took me two hours to find a paper checkbook. Do you know, just on this digression, I've started to pay a lot of bills that I wasn't paying before, uh, having moved into a house. <laughs> and a lot of them have the option... Welcome to domestic life. <laughs> And a lot of them have the option to pay online, which I always love doing, and everything in England and, you know, well, here as well, but everything in England I did. I I never had a checkbook in my life. And because I finally got a checkbook, because I had to for three or four things and it was just worth it, I bought a checkbook. They sent me about 250 checks. I've just started to send them. I quite like almost the magical feeling. I write the check, I put it in an envelope, I leave it in my mailbox, it's gone the next morning, and the next day it's cashed. This is a novel experience for me. I'm sort of going retro, <laughs> like you read these horrible New York Times stories about people in Williamsburg and in Brooklyn who decided to listen to their music on floppy disks now because they just want to be retro <laughs> and they're so sick of convenience. That's me with checks. Of course, the problem with auto pay is that you end up like that poor woman who died and was dead for six years and all of the yeah. bills were on auto pay. And they didn't discover that for a while. Or worse, you, you end up like my friend Nick who uh, had... a gas bill on auto pay and it was a hundred bucks every month or something and one month they just took three grand and when he called them they said yes this was an error and he said well when do I get my money back and she said well wait, you have two options we can either just send you a check and he sort of said yeah he said or you could leave it here and then we just won't charge you until you reach the threshold he for said, the next 20 gas- years <laughs> <laughs> how much gas do you think I'm going to use <laughs> yeah it's funny and we have kind of gone far afield here but I had precisely the same thing happen with my rent 
uh, a couple of months ago where I got charged twice for my rent. And of course, New York City apartments are not <laughs> cheap. And I looked at my uh, my credit card, which is where my bills go on. And I was, did I buy a car that I didn't think about? <laughs> what the hell happened here? So we have wandered a little far afield from our subject. But uh, We were just finishing up with Fortunio, and you were saying it's difficult. Right. it was difficult for him to sell reform. Right, it is, because, you know, it's easy to give away stuff, and it's hard to run on not giving away stuff. I think it was Jude Wininski who called this the two Santa Claus problem where the Democrats had their Santa Claus thing, and the Republican Santa Claus was always tax cuts. Yeah. And for years that worked, and they've been sort of a victim of their own success because they've got so many people off the tax rolls, uh, at least in terms of the federal income tax, that coming in and saying, well, we're gonna reduce tax rates. You've got a lot of people who say, well, I don't care. That doesn't really matter very much to me. And uh, so Republicans really have to come up with, uh, with something else. But to take it back to the example of Puerto Rico, I think, and this was you know, a little self-advertising here, the thesis of my book, my most recent book, which is that um, you know, you've seen it in Puerto Rico, we saw it in Canada back in the 90s, and I think we'll see it in the United States sometime in the near future, is that politicians ultimately will make the right decisions once the money runs out. Once they run out of all other options, they will do the only thing that can be done. And I have some hope that in the U.S. context, we'll manage to get that done without too much chaos and uh, disorder.